Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the June edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Elliot Neff, the founder and CEO of Chess for Life, a platform that teaches kids critical thinking skills, problem solving, EQ, and other important life lessons through chess. Elliot is a master level player, and he holds the professional chess coaching certification level um, five, the highest awarded certification by U.S. Chess. Chess for Life has 70 plus employees, and they've trained over 10,000 students and also have been recognized of one of the Inc. 5000's fastest-growing private companies on their 2015 list. He has written a book, A Pawn's Journey, Transforming Lives One Move at a Time, which shares true-life stories of students he's encountered over his 20-plus years of coaching chess, whose lives have been significantly changed for the better by chess. Elliot Neff, welcome to the June edition of One Move at a Time. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be connecting with you again. No, I, it, yes, it's good to talk. We, we've met at a few national events over the years, but given my East Coast and your West Coast status, uh, it has been difficult for us to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, typically, yes. It seems like we cross paths at the national championships or various other similar meetings mm-hmm. when I was working with the Scholastic Council. So let's, let's start with the very beginning. How did you get started in chess? I love love talking about that. Great memories. And I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) My dad taught me when I was young enough that I don't recall learning how the pieces move. However, I do recall playing my first tournament, seven years old, playing in this small tournament, northwest corner of the country. And and, uh, I was surprised by these devices called chess clocks. They were intimidating. And, And then someone castled their king. And I was like, what's that? And then someone did on Passan on me. I was, I was surprised by all these moves, but I love the game. And uh, that was how I actually got started in the game of chess. And it, that first tournament, I remember even before playing that first tournament, um, I didn't realize how big chess was. <laughs> to me, it was a very small pool of players in my family. And, that, and then there's this one person called Bobby Fisher. And he had played Boris Spassky and we had a list of their games and I used to play through them. And I was like, I would never have resigned and given up when he gave up in that game where famous game, you know, where Bobby traps his own Bishop by taking a poison pawn and uh, shows the level of chess. I was back then. I was like, why did he give up? He has so much chance and, uh, and enjoyed playing games with my dad. But that tournament is what got me started into chess. Seriously played that tournament 
loved it. Did I hear correctly? Did you you faced on passant in your very first scholastic tournament? I did. I did. I got faced with that move and was as dumbfounded as I was by trying to figure out a chess clock <laughs> for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure you thought somebody was cheating on you. Totally, totally. Now, funny story here, though, is the player who used these rules on me ended up winning the tournament. And I practiced all gear, tried to get better, played the tournament again, won four games out of five that next year. Third year played again, ended up tying for first place, but not winning first. And then four years in, I ended up winning that tournament and in that event, defeating the player who had beat me that first year. So it was quite a fascinating journey as I was introduced to the game of chess and just had an absolute blast learning the game, loving the game, and already implementing at that early age one of the skills that we teach today. And that was, if you lose a game, do you run away from that loss or do you embrace the learning? And so we love to talk about you can win, you can draw, or you can learn. There's no lose if your mindset is one of a growth mindset of how do I get better? How do I embrace the opportunity? Well, I always embrace my losses, but after I've wiped away the tears. <laughs> <laughs> I've had plenty of those as many yeah. chess players have had too. Yes. <laughs> so did your father teach you, was he a casual or a tournament player? So he was a casual player, had never played tournament chess until he got us into tournaments. And over the years, we ended up as a family playing in, I think it's nine or 10 of the U.S. Opens. Our first one was Jacksonville, Florida, 1990. And we did a whole series in a row. We played every U.S. Open every year until it was in Hawaii, where we couldn't drive. <laughs> we would have had to take a flight. We drove to them each year as our annual family vacation. And over the years, my dad did become rated, but was barely a 1,400-level player. Um, and good memories of that. My dad picked up the Fromm's Gambit, one F four and figured that was, that was the, the one and the rest of his life, he tried to beat me with it. <laughs> <laughs> now, by the age of 15, you had reached master. So you had a natural talent for this game. Well, that's what a lot of people think. I don't personally believe so. And my reason for that is I've seen talented players and I've met talented players from, you know, young ones to world champions. I've seen amazing talent. For myself, I had a deep desire. I just really wanted to get better and improve. Remember, it took me four years to win my first tournament. And what I did, though, is I committed to learning. I just practiced anytime I could. I asked questions. We did not have a lot of resources, so it was difficult to get professional instruction. However, when I got committed to getting better at the game of chess, I was, uh, I think, 11 years old, 10, 11 years old, and it was more than just a casual interest. I wanted to become champion. I wanted to become high school state champion, and I committed to doing whatever it would take. So I made a list of every chess book I knew of. I looked in the library at every chess book and made a list. I looked at books referenced in chess books and made a list, and I said, I'll read all of these. And I ended up reading over 100 chess books, cover to cover. 
including the Encyclopedia of Chess, which I did not learn that much from for my chess kid play. But I got some fascinating history of chess and things like this. And, you know, one of the keys, and this is a side note, but one of the keys to my learning from those books was I set up nearly every single position in all those books on a physical chessboard, even if I knew the answer, because I wanted to imprint it into my memory and understanding. And if you combine multiple learning styles, right, if you combine the audio, the visual, the tactile, the sensor, the multiple senses, you will retain it better. And so, when people talk about talent in chess and go, oh, you must have been so talented. I like to say, I would tend to more agree with Thomas Edison talking about, you know, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration is how I got to my master title. Well, that's a pretty sophisticated way of learning at such a young age. Was was this completely inner motivated? Yes. Or did somebody teach? Okay. So did you have the same level of dedication towards your academics? So great question. My parents did teach us good values, work ethic, and, and also prioritization. So if our schoolwork was not complete, if our responsibilities or chores were not done, it was unthinkable to go do a pastime. Now, I was homeschooled growing up, and that meant the earlier I could get my homeschool done for the day, the earlier I could start studying chess, which I wanted to get better at. And so my secret, and I say it was perspiration, I was so committed to my goal that I said, I will study chess four hours a day on my own in order to get better. But if I'm going to pass up everybody in the state, I'll bet there's at least a few people who are willing to do the same. So anything beyond four hours a day is how I'm going to get ahead of those people. And that is the goal I set for myself. And I tracked it on paper, writing down the hours I would put in. Even if I didn't feel like it, I still put it in because that was my goal. And I believe that commitment to the goal would help me get there. So as a homeschool kid in early high school, I also graduated a couple of years younger, but that was due to, you know, at home, you can go faster. You can do some of those things. So I was doing high school at age, I think it was 13, 12, 13. And I would get up Monday morning, rarely later than 4 a.m. And I would get up before any of my family was up and I would apply myself to my schoolwork as hard as I could, as fast as I could, as best I can. Because if I had poor scores, I would hear about that too. So many times by breakfast time, I was done my schoolwork for the day. And while siblings were starting their schoolwork, I was starting my chess work. Hmm. And I would, even if it was a day I didn't feel like it, I would put in at least two hours in the morning and then another two hours in the afternoon. And every time I had my, I literally had a timer to track my time. I would just do this because if I didn't feel like it, I worked right to the second of four hours and then off I went to something else. But other days I would get to the four hour mark and I would go, hmm, I can do an extra 30 minutes. I'll get ahead of whoever that is fictional person is out there in the state. And that did allow me to achieve the dream, which was high school state champion and national master while I was in high school. Well, hearing that description, I'm, I'm now thinking of myself as the anti 
Elliot Neff because I was like the complete opposite <laughs> at your age <laughs> about how I approached my schoolwork. So that mm-hmm. that's really interesting to, to hear such a different interdirected approach. And you said you were starting high school work at 12 or 13. Um, how old were you when you became high school champion? So I was high school champion when I was 16. And I, I was, or was I 15? Forgetting now. So I was born in 77 and I was high school champion and represented our state in the Denker tournament two years, 93 and 94. So if I do the math there, I was born in July. So, you know, I would, I would turn to the next age right after the year was over. So I think I was 15, 16 or 16, 17, uh, just turned 17 when I was at the Denker. Okay. Well, let's let's jump forward in time to Chess for Life. When when was this company founded? What was the uh, guiding principle behind it? And tell us tell us all anything you want to tell us about the company. Yeah, uh, you know what I I'd love to talk about that. And I realized part of your last question though, I'd like to add one more piece to. And and you were asking about inner driven, right? Inner motivated versus not. And this is something I think that is huge. And the reason I want to come back to this is I do work with many many parents and students. And something that I have noted is you have chess players who are self-motivated and you have chess players who are parent-driven. And then you have the chess players who are parent-supported. And I would say I was the self-driven and parent-supported combination that made it so possible. I do not recall my parents ever forcing me to do any chess, but they strongly encouraged it and supported it and made it possible for me, sacrificing many things to do it because we were not a financially well-to-do family. And they, my dad would end up driving me nearly every week to the Friday night club competition at the Seattle Chess Club in those formative years when I was training and trying to get better. And he was driving close to 100 miles one way to get there just so I would have the opportunity. And he was working a full week. He would get off work at six and we would hurry down there as quickly as we could to get to this event that's supposed to start at 7.30 p.m. Many times we were a few minutes late, but we would be registered ahead and get in the door and play one long game of chess and then drive home talking about the game. And that's how my dad and my parents really supported my passion and my interest. And my siblings were part of it and they thought it was healthy for us to learn the game of chess and it's good for us. So I wanted to point that out because I've seen so many kids who are pushed and then quit. Yeah. Have you ever seen a successful parent-driven kid? <laughs> that is a great point. I have not, to be fair. I have seen yeah. kids who maybe were encouraged or even pushed to do some things at an earlier age. And maybe the child just did need some direction and these things, because there are life skills to be learned about commitment and not giving up. But at a certain point, they have to own it themselves or they will not be successful with it. Right. And there's certainly a a fine line between parental support and parental driving. (laughs) Totally. Totally. So onto your question about the founding of Chess for Life. Um, I love talking about this because for 20 years, I have not had a job. I've had a dream. And it's one of those cases where I was playing chess, loved the game, competed, uh, went up, achieved those goals of national master and high school champion and so on. 
And then I spent time in some other fields, like in construction, cellular phones. I did a couple of semesters of college. I dropped out of college because I didn't, didn't like the direction it was going while I was running a small chess company, which was selling chess products. And we, my brother and I we ended up buying the chess house, which became chesshouse.com. And that's how I self-funded some of my chess learning. It's another part of our entrepreneurial journey. So I was I was more of an entrepreneurial mindset. I wanted to own and be in control and and innovate and do things like this. And in my early 20s, I had done a number of things and I was searching for what is my path? Where is it? Where can I find a career, a path, something that of real meaning in life? I wanted to make a difference. I did not just want to have a job. I had some decently paying jobs at different times, but I was searching for this direction. And ultimately I had decided, okay, I'm going to go back to college, finish up some you know, some of my studies so that I'm prepared to go make a difference. And I wanted, knew I wanted to work with children in some way. And all these years I'd been coaching chess since I was in high school, part-time, never full-time, just helping students individually, helping an occasional club, a class. I ended up having a, a number of schools. I was coaching their high school teams or their middle school teams, or, you know, it just, I kind of fell into it. I still remember the first time a parent asked me to coach their son. And I was like, sure. And they're like, we'll pay you. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so I had a $5 per lesson student, you know, as a, as a high school kid. And uh, another story, another time, that student is now one of my employees and has been for 10 years. And he grew up, got a degree, everything else, and ended up coming to work with us. But so one day I was driving down the freeway in Washington state and driving a long drive home. I was in Seattle. I've been coaching. I was driving back up to Northwest corner and I had decided I'm going to quit teaching chess. I'm going to drop all my students. I'm going to hand them off to others. I'm going to drop my other things. And I'm going to go back to that education to finish this up and be prepared for the next phase of life. I love chess. That wasn't the point. I enjoyed the game, but I wanted to make a difference. And I had just come out of finishing up the school year. So our state elementary championships occurs in the spring, late April, usually. Students had done well, as they usually often did. Um, and nationals had happened. And several parents took me out to dinner and different things were like, you know, thanking me for the work I'd done. And the light bulb went on as I was driving home, as I reflected upon those conversations I had just had. Where the parents, several of them, different times over the last several weeks that that spring, had all said the same thing in different words. What they had said was, you know, thank you for coaching our kids chess, our son, our daughter, different ones. They go, they've had a great year. They've done well. They've, they've improved, right? They've done well in state and nationals. We're just really grateful for what you're doing. And they said, but here's one thing that we've noticed that we really value. One, their grades have gone up better than before. Two, they're able to focus and they can complete their homework better than ever. Three, they're not afraid of losing anymore. They embrace learning. They said, you have been a mentor and a role model to them, and you've helped them develop these skills while you're teaching chess. That is what we are so grateful for. And as I reflected on those conversations, I suddenly realized I was already in my calling. I was in my mission, and my mission was simply not to necessarily develop chess champions, even though at Chess for Life, we've had dozens of of national champions and hundreds of state champions for their grades and so on. But my mission 
right at that moment just popped into mind. It was to transform kids' lives with the chess game as the vehicle for them to learn these other essential skills, to learn to not fear failure, to learn to embrace learning, to go, don't give up for fear of losing. Try, get better, get up again, do it again. Develop the ability to focus on something instead of just reactionary and computer games and you're diminishing your ability to focus on something. Build the skill. It's a skill to be built. Your memory, your visualization, right? How you do things. These are transferable skills that if developed intentionally will help a student anywhere they go in life. And that is when the concept of Chess for Life was born. I drove home and immediately quit everything else part-time. And went 100% full-time into this. And I was just never imagining at the time I would start a business. I was just going to do this. And I did. And over the next year and a half, two years, my schedule became extremely full, 100% word of mouth, as I started training many, many students, classes, schools, until I got frustrated because I had to say no to kids who needed help because I had no time left. And that is the reason Chess for Life was founded. And what year was that? That was, I incorporated the organization in the year 2005. Yep. Started bringing on some part-time helpers 2004, just doing it privately, and then went, I need to set up a company to do this because I need more help. So 2005, we incorporated. 2006, we opened our very first chess center, which was... I was not anticipating or planning to do that, but I met some people and it was like, you know, you need to do this if you're going to really serve the community further. And I considered it and there we were. 2006, we opened a chess center and we grew quickly, all word of mouth. How big is the chess center? What's the square footage? So, so the first chess center that we opened was, uh, I believe it was 2,500 square feet. And over time, we expanded. We expanded into multiple locations. Pre-COVID, we had four physical centers totaling 18,000 square feet, all under lease in the greater Seattle area. And the organization had grown to where we were licensing our tools to multiple parts of the country for other people to do the same in order to impact more youth. And speaking of COVID, how did Chess for Life weather the COVID storm? So that was obviously a, a huge disruptor, the way that um, various governors and especially the Washington governor shut things down significantly. So March of 2020 was a whirlwind, a storm. We had to shut our physical centers, all of them. And we had just invested into preparing for what was going to likely be our next, our largest year ever. We would typically serve 3,000 camp students in a summer. And we had done investing into our centers. I just signed two 10-year retail leases, spent the dollars to make the improvements, and we were preparing to ramp up for summer camps when we had to shut down. So it was a very, very difficult time financially. I had to lay off 22 staff in a single day. Uh, not Not a great week. And on top of all that, that very same week that I made the decision as to who I would lay off, my dad, who had taught me chess, called me to say he had stage four cancer. So all of that happened in that same week, shutting down the centers, laying off 
the staff, and then my dad's news. And uh, he ended up passing away last year, January, after a year and some battle. And I'm just grateful for the time I had with him over that year, helping him with treatments, traveling to treatments, different things. And, you know, it was, it was good to be able to spend that time with him. And so with COVID or with the shutdown, we pivoted everything online. We had to, right? There was no other option at the time. And our approach, though, I think was essential to where we are today. During that very first month, I took some time during, in fact, the first few days of the shutdown. And I stepped back and went, okay, so what's likely to happen here? Where are we? Where are we headed? What's going to go on? Everybody talks about a two-week shutdown. I don't see that happening. Um, This is probably going to be longer. And I said, "Hmm, what if? What if, right? Chess player. What are the possibilities? What are the threats? What are the opportunities and, and such? What if this lasts much longer? We cannot wait out something like this. And the visual that I ended up coming up with was the following, and I shared this with our team. Imagine that you see a tidal wave coming and you're on the shore. And just imagine that's a tidal wave of disruption about to hit where you are. You have a choice. And of course, we're playing with words and ideas here. Said so one option is you become the rock, which the wave will wash over, maybe make it cleaner. And then it's there after the disruption has gone. And then you rise up out of the water, show up again, and there you are, solid. I said the visual I want us to take as a team is imagine that we're about to surf the largest wave we've ever surfed. We're going to stand up, get ready, and ride this wave and turn it into energy and momentum for where we need to go because our mission is the same. How do we take the game of chess to impact a million youth a week with life skills through the game of chess? So our mindset was we're not going to hunker down and wait. We're going to say with all this disruption, what is going to change and how do we turn that into momentum? And so one of the things that I said in the first couple months was this disruption is likely going to shift technology in our schools. It's likely going to mean that the schools that were not able to bridge the technology gap will solve that, which means we need to be able to leverage technology better when we come back to in-person. And so immediately from the start, I asked our team to go about the mindset of shift what we can online in a virtual environment, figure out how do we develop EQ as well as IQ, not just chest skill, through a virtual environment and be ready to leverage those abilities in a hybrid or bring back the benefits of it when we reopen physical space. And that was our mindset from the start. And I'm very glad we did, <laughs> looking back. Um, so how how did we bridge it as a whole today? We now have students in 39 states versus being Northwest regional. We now have students much further spread. Uh, we are a smaller team than back then because we did not reopen our centers um, for two years. And as of now, we're just in the process of doing some small reopenings, but a large part of our focus has continued to be in that space of empowering others like teachers, educators, partners, and organizations to be able to bring the benefits to their youth. So, for example, um, 
early education. We work with Head Start communities, right? Communities that are preschool, low-income, multiple challenges, uh, many, many barriers. And we've been able to expand during this season to bring the benefits of chess to those communities to the point that in Washington State, um, we have a partnership with the Head Start that every Head Start has the opportunity to bring chess to their youth. And we've had, as of last month, over 1,300 Head Start at-risk preschoolers are doing chess in their classrooms with their facilitators every week. And it's a beautiful thing to see because of the data showing that when kids do this and do it mapped to kindergarten readiness objectives and such, there's data that's showing kids that do this, do it moves the dial, moves the needle on them being ready to succeed once they get to kindergarten. Because the challenges of kids who are behind, they start behind, they stay behind. So why shouldn't we give the kids the opportunity? I, I am curious about that data because I, um, you, you've, you mentioned a number of times now about all the benefits of chess that we all, we all feel that there's plenty of anecdotal evidence out there, but it's still not completely convincing that it isn't just a self-selecting sample. And so what, what is this data that you have that Absolutely. And first off, let me say there's a dearth of enough really good data in this space. I've seen many different studies on chess or attempts at at studies. And for example, if you run a study and you say, we're going to see how chess changes math scores, and you send in non-educators who teach chess for one hour a week, and they don't know how to work with kids, you're not going to see outcomes, right? <laughs> it's, you know, and then you look at other studies which claim certain things, and you look, ah, that doesn't look very, again, that's a self-serving data study or, or data set. So first off, let me say there's, in my view, a lot of room for people to do research in this area. The data I'm referring to on the preschool side was done by a third-party evaluator of our program, which was done by a grant via Boeing over the last five years. So what they did is they literally came into the Head Start classrooms. And they literally took the classrooms where chess was integrated and they would compare it to classrooms where chess was not integrated within the same school or site, within the same county, within the same area, and just ran the data. And they said, we've got the outcomes, we've got the classrooms that did versus those that didn't. And what we see is, as a whole, classrooms that have integrated this with certain criteria, right? It had to be with three times a week plus, right? There were certain criteria. They appear to perform better in some of these domains. Now, that all being said, we're talking preschool evaluation. And that's tough to do because preschool are doing a test. No, the way it's done is teachers input their observations into the data system, which is national, TS Gold data. And that's where it came from, though. And so when I talk about this data, that's what we've had. It's a third-party evaluator observing this whole grant implementation and showing those outcomes. That being said, there's still not anything close to enough. And I just had a conversation this week with, uh, with another good friend in the chess education space. And we were talking about something that I do believe needs to be considered carefully. And that is, even though I've used the term transferable skills, I am not convinced yet that those skills transfer with that. If you don't have an intentional effort to bring those life lessons and skills forward. And here's what I mean by that is how many master level, right? Really strong chess players have you heard of who in life 
don't appear to be making great choices. So they can think ahead amazingly well and plan and strategize on the board, yet do they do that in their life? So that skill apparently may not have transferred in many cases. But what I do believe is that chess is a great vehicle for it because it is actually quite easy to do if it's done intentionally. Because the analogy is so simple, right? If you think, hey, in chess, when did you last get checkmated? Okay. Does that mean you should give up chess because you can't do it? Well, no. Okay. What did you learn from it? How did you apply that now? Okay. Now let's pause a second. And think about your life. When did you feel like you got checkmated in life? What caused it? What did you learn from it? And what are you going to do to get better moving forward? Now we've drawn an intentional conscious connection. And I do put out there for, you know, it's more like a hypothesis than it is any (laughs) statement of fact. But the more I look at these elements, I think there are areas or, or many areas that need intentionality to create it as a transferable skill. I do believe there are some that are perhaps more innate, right? Talk about some of the math elements about counting. The pieces have point values. You're working with numbers. You're getting familiar with them. It's going to help build those skills at an early level, right? It's practicing math in a game. (laughs) That's going to help your math and counting and and those elements. So maybe I've digressed a little bit, but (laughs) you asked a question that's really near and dear to my heart, which is really about, are we getting the outcomes desired? Because that's my whole reason. It isn't because I love chess that I do all this, even though I really do enjoy the game. But my whole goal is, am I helping kids get the skills and be prepared to succeed wherever they go in life? So that that last uh, comment uh, that, that you just made reminds me of how People who are outside the chess world still have this myth in their heads that you have to be smart to play chess. But you know, your your narrative just now kind of puts the proof to that lie. <laughs> Absolutely. So I hear that or heard that quite a bit over the first years. I don't hear it quite as much, but maybe it's just because of the circles I'm in at this stage. And that is, you know, chess makes you smart, right? Or smart kids play chess, which is it, right? Is it the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken, which is, you know, which comes first, what what happens? And my premise behind it is really that chess is that vehicle, right? Chess is that tool that can help you develop certain skills if applied. And certainly you could say that persons with natural aptitude can pick up chess and other games like that fairly easily. So maybe they gravitate more towards it. Maybe that creates a perception of that element. But chess as an educational tool is incredible. My belief is that anybody, except with some major exceptions due to physical limitations and such, anybody can learn to play chess and learn to play it at an okay level. I'm not saying master level. I'm not saying other. It takes real dedication to get there. But the vast majority can do chess. And it's one of the perceptions that I seek to change in the talks that I give, in the book that I wrote, Upon's Journey, right? In talking with educators, because we train educators. I'll give an example here. I was just training a school six months ago that agreed to do a pilot of chess in their school. 
And the objective was, and I'd wanted to do this with the school, so we, we put an agreement together to do this, that all teachers would incorporate chess into all students, grades two through five. And I had pushed for doing a test this way because if you don't do it that way, you can always create the dynamic of they play chess or, you know, they're the nerds or other words that have been used around chess, which again, I don't hear as frequently, but I wanted to create that environment where there's not that potential stigma of they do chess and, oh, we don't do chess, you see. So I went into this school and ended up training around 15 teachers. You know, majority of them had zero to little background in the game of chess, right? Many of them didn't even know all the names of the pieces. Most of them did not know how all the pieces move other than I think there were two or three who had some decent experience. So we trained them through the tools that we've developed for, for bringing in the game of chess. And the outcome was what we've seen across the country, that when you bring it in as an educational tool and you break it down the right way, the confidence level of these teachers goes from, in some cases, even I'm scared or intimidated by the game of chess to, wow, I could do that. And I can see how that can help my kids. So we did this in one of these schools just you know six months ago. It was uh, right at the end of the year, we did the training. And then they literally incorporated 15 minutes of chess two to three times a week. And we just did the showcase two weeks ago and 320 kids played chess. And they're now really excited about what they've seen happen, both in this social space, as well as in how they're engaging with this game. So now talks are underway for how do we expand that benefit beyond the pilot. And so I think, you know, chess is for smart people or smart kids. I think it's just a uh, really, truly not true. <laughs> you know, I, I do truly believe that the opposite can be the case. That if a person will engage with the game of chess and develop mindsets of success, such as it, it starts with a courage, a commitment that I'm willing to do something that might be a bit scary. And then you follow through with that. And that will end up building your capability. And finally, you end up with confidence. But most of us, and I learned this through a business group that I was a part of too, and I had this, this way of framing it, most of us want to have confidence and then we'll do something. But chess can help us build the grit necessary to try things that are scary and learn and improve. And that ultimately is what gives us the confidence. Right. I, I love that you use the word grit because... The older I get, I, it seems to me more and more grit is like the defining characteristic of successful people. I would tend to agree that if you, if, even among chess players who have talent, okay, I've worked with many students who are just naturally, they're just incredibly talented, gifted. Maybe it's because they have a memory that's unbelievable, whereas mine I had to really work on developing, you see? And that ability, that almost intangible grit, that willingness to not give up, to keep going when it's hard, to fall down and get back up and to push through and give it your all, right? That capability has differentiated between what I've seen as students of talent and which ones went on to win championships and which ones went on and enjoyed the game and were okay and went on to something else. 
right? That element. So I would tend to agree with you. Grit is one of those almost intangible, but key markers for long-term success. My, my question on the flip side would be, so how can you develop grit through games like chess? And I do believe you can by building this resiliency, right? This emotional resilience, that EQ, and that willingness to learn to fail. And that's why we really strive to push this win, draw, learn, do it together, right? Don't be afraid. Can do attitude. If you think you can, you probably can. And if you think you can't, you're always right. And by EQ, you, you mean emotional quotient, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your your book. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. It's uh, a pawn's journey, and it's got this great subtitle that we here at One Move at a Time really like: uh, "Transforming Lives One Move at a Time." Uh, t- tell us about the book, where it can be found. Thank you. Yeah, it was. This is a, a story in itself because you got to understand when I was in school, my absolute least favorite subject was writing. So when I eventually told my mom one time that I was going to, I was writing a book, she said, you're doing what? (laughs) She had a hard time believing I was going to do it. And the reason for the book was not because I wanted to be an author, but I believe so strongly in the why we are doing chess for life. And people would always say, so what do you mean chess for life? You mean they play chess their whole life? And I was like, no, 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 no. In fact, if they, if they really learn the, the principles, they'll quit playing chess so much and they'll go on and apply it in their real life. <laughs> and, and so I would tell these stories over and over of kids whose lives I had seen transformed by the game, you know, of a student in special needs classes even who special ed, who through chess, learn to focus, learn to commit, learn to be willing to fail. And eventually this kid moved out of the special education requirements into regular class and then became top of his class. And at the same time in his, in his chess, he ended up representing the state of Washington in an international competition. And when I talked to the dad about it, the dad was like, it's because of the skills he learned while learning chess at Chess for Life. And those were the stories I would tell from that kid to the ones who are talented, to the ones who are not, the ones who wanted to give up, to the ones who who achieved perfect scores on math SATs. And and the parents later said, "It's, it's not because they just could. It's because what they learned through chess was how to focus and commit towards a goal and never give up on pursuing it, that they would achieve these things. And so ultimately, in order to further our sharing the message of what we mean about life through the game of chess and chess as a vehicle, I went, I think we just need to write a book to tell these stories. And for three years, it was on my wish list, and I figured someday someone would write it. (laughs) And then the long story short is eventually, I felt, I guess I better just get started. So I I found a publisher who... I did a two-day workshop with him, Made for Success Publishing in uh, Washington State, Brian Heathman, great individual. And and we did a day and a half, two-day workshop together. And at the end of the day, we had an outline created for what to do. And I sat down and looked at it and went, you know what? I think I better just do this first draft. And then let's hand it off to Ghostwriter so they can finish it. (laughs) And 89 days later, the draft of the book was done. And then another year, year and a half of editing, it was then published. And uh, it was a joy to get it out there. And it has helped in many ways. You can find it online 
find it on my personal website, elliotneff.com. You can find it in Amazon. You can find it in many, uh, Barnes and Noble carries it. Many books carry it. Um, quite a few outlets. If you Google it, you'll find it for sure. And what year was it published? So uh, 2016, 2017, which year was it? Time just flies. So much has happened with the last few years. I believe it's 2017 that we published. Um, and it came out in the fall, but it's a novel. So it's a made up character and story, but all these true life stories are woven into it. So the main character really meets many of these students stories over the years. And um, anyway, the reason we chose that format was rather than just a collection of stories, which I might do someday also, we wanted to create something that would be interesting to a non-chess player as well as to chess players. So someone who doesn't know the game at all will greatly enjoy a story like this. And I've had many teachers around the country, second grade teachers up through middle school teachers talk about using it in their classroom. It's reading level is about a sixth grade, but second grade teachers oftentimes use it to read. And uh, others have used it. We've created even some little mini tools like a life skills scorecard and little things to bring bring home some of these life lessons. So it's a work in progress always in developing how to better do this. But the book, um, the book was labor of love as much as I don't like writing. <laughs> well, and that's why you were able to do it. It was because it was a labor of love. You know? So that, that can overcome the, that, that other part. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, a funny, funny note on that front is we teach these life skills. Right. And one day I sat there going, wait a sec. I need to apply my own life skill here. I'm approaching this with a can't do attitude. <laughs> you know, if I think I can't, of course, I'm not going to. So wait a sec. Assuming I can write this book, what would I do next? And you start moving forward and you build the confidence by doing it. So as, as we enter the last stages of this show, uh, some questions I'm curious about for you. Uh, what, would, what would you say is your proudest chess moment and what's your proudest life moment? And maybe it's one in the same. <laughs> wow. Those are, those are great questions. So many memories come flooding to mind when you talk about the chess moments, like uh, playing on board one at the US Open and holding a draw at the time is against an IM, round four, US Open, first time defeating a grandmaster at the US Open Championships. Um, oh, you got to give the GM's name. <laughs> yeah, that was Kryman, Boris Kryman uh, in the US Open. And then uh, the board one was against IM at the time, at least Larry Kaufman. And and then holding a draw in a simul against Vichy Anand in 2012 when he was world champion. He played 20 people in LA and I was invited as I was one of four masters who played him and the others were weaker players. And it was a three and a half hour match and I held a draw down a rook for a queen, but built a fortress with rook and two against queen and one pawn. Were you the only draw? Uh, no, there were there were a few draws. Um, I think there were there might have even been three. There were two or three draws. Yeah. He didn't lose any games, but that was right before he lost to Carlson in the world championship match. <clears throat> so those are all memories. I would say another one, though, that comes to mind is my one of my favorite games of all time, where I was playing in the Washington Open Championships and played a match against a former state champion, 2,400 plus player, and was just able to play a beautiful game where I was able to place a rook on pre. <clears throat> sacrificing to try to get through to his king. 
and leave it where it could be captured by a pawn for a few turns. And then march my king all the way up to the fourth rank with the queens on the board and then back. And it was just a beautiful game of attacking and breaking through. And uh, again, a favorite memory there. Um, in term, And that's from obviously personal chess games and stories, right? Uh, I've had many of those over the years. In terms of a life moment, like most, most impactful or memorable, well, um, marrying my wife is highlight of my <laughs> a huge highlight, uh, the light bulb moment that gave me direction in my purpose in life and my mission. You know, I had been praying through what do I do and where do I go? And, and that moment really gave me an amazing opportunity. I feel to start heading down this path with a million youth a week as our mission to impact. And then, of course, you know, having children is an experience that's absolutely incredible. Uh, so my oldest is now 11 years old and loves the game of chess. And my youngest is 15 months old and loves, loves picking up the pieces and chewing on them. <laughs> Are any of your kids tournament players? Uh, they all love to play, all the older ones. And I usually start them around age one or two on some chess pieces where they're just toys that they get to name. And by the time they're two, they usually know all the names and, you know, the two-year-olds love to set up the boards and knock the pieces down. And uh, my, my older uh, four, I have uh, multiple kids have done decently well. Uh, They were um, top 10 in the state of Washington for their grades. Um, Although I'm, I will say, and this might be a surprise is I've moved. I am now living in the Midwest, only one time zone off from you. I'm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota now. Okay, that is a surprise. So I've I've been assuming you've been talking to me from Washington. <laughs> no, I'm I'm actually in the middle of the country now. And in some ways, it's very natural. You see, we teach control the center of the board, and I was sitting in the corner <laughs> and I had to move to the middle. <laughs> right, right. You know, and on the personal side, we were able to move from near Seattle into now an acreage, which is a beautiful place for our kids to grow up and learn many other life skills, such as raising animals and chickens and things like this. Um, and plus, I'm very close to a regional airport, which allows me access to be able to go anywhere in the country I need to. Okay, well, very cool. And um, so here's a similar question to what I just asked you, but what has the game of chess meant to you in your life? You know, chess for me was an opportunity that came along and I was struggling as a young kid in different areas. And what I mean by that is just, I had this mind that would be thinking about life and what's the purpose in life and what are we doing and why do we do it? And, I, I, I was a little pointless early on. I'm a person, I'm a Christian by faith, and I came to an understanding of that early on. And what and chess ended up being a big part of this life journey of mine, because what it did is it gave for me something that was deeply important to me. And that was, I don't want to live a life of just ease or joy or fun or happiness or this or that. I want to live a, a life that means something, something of significance. I want to accomplish something of significance. And chess as a child gave me an outlet for pursuing something and striving to achieve and tangibly seeing the rewards of that. And then had transformed into something that I can use to positively impact millions of others. 
And so it's why I say I've not had a quote unquote job. I have nothing against jobs, but the the idea of saying I just have a job or something, right? Meaning I'm doing work because I need to to work and it's not beyond that. And for me, it's given me the opportunity to live my life with purpose. It's the vehicle through which I can make a difference. And it's why I love doing it, even though it can be very challenging at times. There are many difficult problems to solve, which, you know, as a chess player, that's what we do. We solve problems, right? <laughs> so I'm not sure if that answers the question very well, but that's... Oh, it's a great... No, it's a great answer. <laughs> that's that's where I come from. And so I'm very thankful for the opportunities I've had through the game of chess. You know, let me add one more quick thing to that. It was an incredible experience as a child to have parents who supported this and who turned our chess interest into our family annual vacation. So the U.S. Open was our annual vacation from 1990 through, I think, 98 or 99. And just traveling the country, driving together, talking together, playing games and reviewing them together. We got to experience the country, or at least hotels in different parts of the country, <laughs> as we played tournaments. And then meeting people from all over the country, from different walks, you know, I felt that I had, I, I didn't have this mindset of just being in a small town stuck in a corner. I had this view of life that was from Philadelphia and Chicago and Florida and California and and in Alexandria, Virginia, and going to the Smithsonian on this on some of these trips and going to these different areas, I would meet people and cultures and places that I think is an incredible experience for kids. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I really support kids going to the national championships. You travel, you prepare, you compete. There's so many life lessons to be learned with the time, the investment, the experience, and so many fronts. That if people can ever do it, it's one of the reasons I've been such a huge fan of supporting and encouraging and helping teams, whether they're beginning chess or advanced, going to the national championships. Boy, that's a that's a great place I think for us to be ending this. So, be, but before we say goodbye, tell us tell us the websites. Uh, tell us again where you can buy the book. Tell us how people can contact you if they have any specific questions. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Chess for Life, that's the game of chess, the number four, the word life, L-I-F-E, dot com is where we have many resources. Uh, we have our YouTube channel, our Chess for Life YouTube channel. You can just Google it, find it. It has a fun little two and a half minute founding story we just published and all kinds of free resources and videos. And then my personal website, elliotneff.com, E-L-L-I-O-T-T. N-E-F-F, like frank.com. I do have some personal, uh, the book is available there as well as online. And if people email us, we've got some other links and a lot of free resources we like to give out to help people get started. Well, Elliot Neff, thank you so much for joining us on this June edition of One Move at a Time. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you, Dan. It was really a pleasure to connect with you again, too. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, 
Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month. And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.